Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on July 13th, 2019 at Provincetown Theatre in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was worship. I'm Vanessa Vardabedian. And I'm William Mullen. And we are the hosts of the Mosquito Story Slam. I was not able to attend because I was worshiping nature. Oh, well, that's righteous in itself. Uh, well, we did have a guest host that night, James Barnes. He's, He's a, terrific. He is terrific. He's a storyteller in his own right and a local Cape Codder who does some really good work here. And you had an amazing guest storyteller who's also a really good friend of mine, Neil DeBear Thornton. Yes, yes. He told all kinds of story about worship, body worship. It's a very, very funny story. I think you guys should definitely listen to it. Lots of other stories going on there. One of my favorites is Pat's story about her worship of Cher. Who doesn't like Cher? And I hear you actually have photos with the podcast. Yes, that's right. Some of our stories do have photos. And if you look at our playlist on the podcast, you'll see a playlist called Stories with Photos. And you'll see a picture from Pat's story. So without further ado, let's listen. Please welcome James Barnes. Thank you, Lady Venus. Uh, there's no other lobby that I'd rather be in than this one. Um, we were going to be in the theater, apologies, but they're building a time machine. I wasn't supposed to say that. Um, um, we have our own time machine going on out here. We're going to tell some stories tonight, uh, and I'm going to get you going. Many of you probably know where I came from. I grew up, there, I see a lot of my friends in the audience tonight. I grew up in a town near here called East Ham. Um, yeah, a lot to like about East Ham, right? A lot to love, Fort Hill, Coast Guard Beach, turnips. And it's actually the library. The library's amazing, Ben and Jerry's. But it's actually the turnips that I think globally people know East Ham for, and the people of East Ham are definitely obsessed with the East Ham turnip, like obsessed. My uh, dad, it goes, actually goes back to colonial times. It's, it's kind of crazy, hundreds of years. But there's actually one family who claimed for years to have the only real East Ham turnip seed. And my dad thought it would be a really good idea to crush the East Ham turnip aristocracy <laughs> and make a buck doing it. He was a visionary way ahead of his time. Whenever he started a new business, uh, he would always choose me as his primary business partner, even as a teenager, um, mainly because he knew that I was obsessed with him, and I thought his ideas were brilliant, and just loved the guy. I mean, he's pure genius. Um, in a time when everyone was subdividing their properties and developing, building homes, making tons of money, we actually leveled an acre of woods on our Northeast End property to plant turnips. Like I said, my dad was a visionary. <laughs> we, um, we had a, an East Ham Turnip Seed Connect. Uh, it was uh, Jolly Roger the Barber, who actually convinced my dad to start this crazy project. He, uh, the ultimate politician, he sweet-talked some seed off the East Ham Turnip Royal family. <laughs> and slid it to my dad because he knew my dad was the only person crazy enough to level an acre of woods in Northeast Ham and plant turnips. <laughs> it actually really started, we really started to get notice for this. Uh, it really started to take off. Um, there were, uh, like, the day before, a couple days before Thanksgiving is the busiest time for turnips, and we were always out of them <laughs> because our little turnip field could not handle the demand. And people would, like, be creeping through our yard, they'd be knocking on our door, like you could see them at the windows. I can remember friends of mine, we would like hide because like there were strange people like looking for turnips the day before Thanksgiving, pull the curtains, 
where we had them. But there was some pushback. It wasn't all good news. Um, you know, there were crazy rumors about my dad all over town, which I'm sure he loved, um, that he was losing his mind, and which that happened years before the turnip thing. And I remember one day, my younger brother came home from school. He was really upset. Uh, another cl a classmate, a member of the East Ham Turnip royal family, uh, accused him of lying, said our family did not have the real East Ham Turnip seed, that only his grandfather had the real East Ham Turnip seed. And my brother's telling me this, and I got really mad. And I was like, didn't you tell him we got it from Jolly Roger the farmer, the, the barber, Jolly Roger the barber gave it to our dad. He got it from his grandfather. And I'm telling you, the stress was real. It was like real. I actually, I took to the farming thing. I loved it. I mean, a lot of my dad's other businesses I didn't love. Um, it didn't end up loving, but the turnip thing I did. So I went to college to study agriculture. And, uh, and people in college thought this whole idea was crazy too. And um, I went on an internship, and I learned something really unsettling about the famous East Ham turnip. I still remember the day like it was yesterday. I was at this farm on Cape Cod in Sandwich, very old farm, and the owner of that farm came in, and he heard me talking about my business idea and how I wanted to expand the, turnip, the East Ham turnip farm. He's like, listen, James. We grow the Cape White turnip, you grow the East Ham turnip. It's all the same thing, it's not even a turnip. It's a rutabaga. A rutabaga. The people of East Ham have been living a lie for hundreds, I'm talking hundreds of years. I mean, for in my lifetime, I had to listen to, it's so sweet, it's so delicious, it doesn't taste like a turnip at all. It's, you know, so much bigger than a turnip. It's because it's not a turnip. It's a rutabaga. <laughs> so I left the East Ham turnip racket in, uh, in my early 20s. Uh, not because I was living a lie like everyone else in East Ham, is shockingly because I could not earn a living doing it. <laughs> uh, I did come back to agriculture. I work for a farm now, as she said, capabilities. And we're, you know, that farm is really well known for tomatoes, among other things. And um, a couple summers ago, I'm walking out of our farm stand at Capabilities, and this woman's walking in, and she looks at me, and she goes, hey, aren't you the East Ham turnip guy? <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, I don't talk about tomato, uh, turnips anymore. <laughs> I'm a tomato guy now. <laughs> and actually, it's a rutabaga. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sylvia, come. Please come to the stage. So this story takes place in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I lived until I was 10 years old. I turn 10 years old every April. Well, I turn a year older every April. And that April, which was the April that I was in sixth grade, which was the oldest grade at our elementary school, I was told that we were moving. I immediately went into sort of hyperdrive over this interruption of my, my life plan, which involved at that point making sure that my status as a Girl Scout with the <laughs> opportunity to wear the green Girl Scout sash had as many badges on it as possible. And I didn't have very much time to either earn them or I couldn't even think past that. So I got the book down from its shelf um, and I looked through it very carefully. And first of all, I scanned it for the easiest 
badges to earn. And then I separated those into the prettiest of the easiest badges. <laughs> what this means, for those of you who have never looked at a Girl Scout badge, they are works of art and they are made of brightly colored embroidery thread. And the one I wanted the most, which was a combination of the easiest to get and the most beautiful, was, I believe, um, a campfire badge. And it was a picture of this pot, like a brown pot. And rising up from it were orange and golden and yellow flames. And beneath it were logs. And all you had to do for it was build a fire. And I knew how to do that. So it was super easy. And I would go down, I would bug my Girl Scout leader, and I would say, so mm, this is the checklist, and you have to initial all the places. And then she would, and then I would you know, get her signature, and then I would know that I could purchase a badge. So after sixth grade was over, before we had to pack, I went to my mother and I said, this, see, the, I have earned like 23 Girl Scout badges and we have to go down to Higby's and purchase them because I earned them. And then you have to sew them on my sash. <laughs> and my mother said, oh no, honey, I don't have time to do that. And I slammed the door on her and I went up to my room and I did a, um, I did sort of a pantomime and a sulk at the same time. I sat in front of a window, and when she came upstairs to see why I wasn't coming down to set the table, I said, oh, hello. <laughs> Have you seen my mother? <laughs> and she said, what are you talking about? I'm your mother. And I said, oh, no, my mother's gone. <laughs> because my mother would certainly have bought me my Girl Scout badges that I worked so hard for. <laughs> so we didn't talk about it at dinner. And then after dinner, as I was clearing the plates, I said, it doesn't matter anyway. I'm going to ask Dad. <laughs> the following week, and I don't know where my mother found the money for the badges, which were not inexpensive, but usually a week of my tyranny worked. And at 10 years old, the following Saturday, she said, we can go to Higby's because now I have the car and we can drive and, and I'll get you your badges. And I said, thank you. And then we drove in the car and we got the badges. And I just remember seeing them under a counter and I had to show the book and I had to show the signatures and I got all the badges. And I, I mean, you couldn't, it was like, it was like holding coins or something, they were so beautiful and heavy and we put them into a, a bag, you know, a special bag. I think it was clear plastic because you could sort of see them and I was imagining which one I'd wanted to sew on first and so on and so forth. Um, I'm gonna skip ahead because when we got to my new school, which was in a completely different state, and I happened to mention to someone shyly in my neighborhood before school started at the new school, which would be seventh grade, that I had a whole lot of Girl Scout badges that my mother, who was so stupid, hadn't even sewn on yet. And she told me, oh, don't tell anybody that. And I said, why? And she said, because everybody here thinks Girl Scouts are really queer. So. I felt two emotions at once, once, and they're sort of connected with worship for me. I felt this sense of shame that I had made my mother do this. I had made her spend money we probably couldn't afford. And then I sulked and made her feel really bad that she hadn't sewn them on. And they were like sitting in a spot where we both knew she hadn't sewn them on yet. And I'd have to just take the bag where they were sitting and put it you know, into my room in my closet because I was never going to sew them, have them sewn on the sashes. And I went outside um, and I didn't 
go where I would see that friend who had cued me into how to you know, be cool in seventh grade. And I went outside and I saw um, this intersection. It was at Chagrin and <laughs> Warrington Boulevard in Shaker Heights, Ohio. This is the very outskirts of Shaker Heights, Ohio, where my parents had moved us because of the school system. And um, there was a field. And at the edge of the field, near a telephone pole, grew wild chicory, which is a very beautiful shade of blue. And I couldn't tell the difference between the shade of blue of the chicory or the shade of blue of the sky. And it was a moment of worship for me. And when I came in the house, I didn't feel ashamed. All right, please welcome to the stage, Annie C. Annie C. My name's Annie, it's, it's G, but I have bad handwriting. Um, <laughs> when, um, when I was 16, almost turning 17, one of the worst things in my life happened to me, but it led to a moment of worship, so I'm sorry if it's sad, but it gets happy at the end, I promise. Um, I grew up in a family that had a lot of stress and notoriety. My last name is Goodridge. You can Google me <laughs> to know what I'm talking about. But um, as I got older, I dealt with depression for a really long time. And it culminated at the end of August. Um, my birthday is September 1st, so it was like August 27th or 28th. Um, and I was at dinner, getting ready for dinner with my, one of my two moms is, you know, people have, um, and, <laughs> and um, I said I had to go to the bathroom. I went upstairs and I went into the bathroom. I opened up the medicine cabinet and just kind of picked a pill bottle. And I took a good amount of them and then went downstairs and sat at the table on the outdoor porch for dinner. I don't remember what happened after that. Um, I had a moment of kind of brownout when I was at Children's Hospital in Boston of going downstairs and sitting in a wheelchair because um, I don't know if they would let me walk around on my own and seeing this kind of Rube Goldberg-esque machine with these little wooden balls that would go down metal tracks and I remember loving it as a kid and I just have this memory, and I don't know if it really happened, but I think it did. Um, but I woke up, and when the doctor asked me what happened, I told him, but I felt like I was lying because I couldn't allow myself to connect with what I was going through and what I had been going through for a long time. I eventually got transferred to... Um, Mary, my mom's ex-girlfriend is here in lesbian fashion, but what was the name of the hospital? Franciscans. Um, I eventually got transferred to um, Franciscans Hospital for Children. Um, and I remember the ambulance ride over because they, when you leave, um, when you leave a hospital to another place, they have to take you in an ambulance. And we were coming up to a red light in Brookline and they didn't want to sit at the red light, so they just turned on the siren for a couple seconds, and we blew through the red light and then kept going. So I found that very funny in a time of stress and hardship in my life. Um, but when I was in the hospital, you know, we had group therapy and pet therapy and all that kind of stuff, and the only people who visited me were my family and girlfriends at the time, including Mary. <laughs> um, and the only other person who visited is this reverend at Arlington Street Church in Boston. It's a Unitarian Universalist church, and her name is Kim Crawford Harvey. And <laughs> I love her. She's awesome. Um, but she came to visit me, and she invited me when I got out after my two weeks. She said, come to Arlington Street, and you're welcome there. 
And that was um, something that I was kind of looking forward to when they said that I could leave. And Mary had been going there with her kids for a long time. And so I felt even more welcome to go. And when I went, they had this kind of process where as they were giving a kind of opening speech, I, they, I only went to church a couple times, so I don't know what the proper word for it is, but there was kind of this opening speech where you could go up and light a candle and write a prayer in a little book. And I wrote a prayer for the people that were at Franciscans with me at the time. And that was a kind of what defines worship for me because I felt like I'm the kind of person who likes to take care of people. And I just felt like I was taking care of the people that I had spent that time with who I, they kind of scared me and it was a hard experience, but I felt like in my worship, which doesn't really mean a lot to me in the religious sense, I felt like I was taking care of everybody. So that's. Our next storyteller, Bob D. Let's give it up for Bob. Okay, so this is gonna be, this is, I'm a little freaked out by the last story because what I'm gonna tell you about also relates to something that she said. Um, okay. Um, anyway, so my theme is um, how did the Boston Marathon bombing influence the selection of a minister of a Unitarian Universalist church? You know, how can that be? Well, back in 19, well, 2013-14, the bombing was in 2013, um, I was the member of a search committee at a UU church in Massachusetts. I won't say where. Um, but in any event, the, um, for those who don't know the process for selecting a minister, and oftentimes I think how easy it is to just be a Catholic, you know? They just send you somebody, you know? And, be done with it, you know. But uh, the process for selecting a minister at a, many of the churches, but it's certainly a UU church, is that the church goes through this, uh, this God-awful intensive uh, analysis of who they are. And we do a, um, a very detailed survey of what our beliefs are, et cetera, et cetera. And we prepare this incredibly detailed packet of who we are so that candidates will see this and say, yeah, I'd want to work at that church, you know? So anyway, you submit that to a central office and the, as well as many other churches who might be in search, as they say. And the, um, the uh, candidates then read through that package and they say, hey, I'm interested. And then they notify the search committee uh, of the, the church that's looking. So we got a, um, uh, about 22, which is a very high number of candidates for our position. You say, oh my goodness. So we had, I think it was a seven members of our committee. So we um, went through and you know, you could weed out some. We say, no, no, that didn't quite fit. You know, you can tell right away. So you narrow it down and then you go through and say, well, here are our other ones. So. Um, there was one particular candidate that I thought was really terrific, but she was 29 years old. And it's like, well, you know, this is an established church, you know, a 20, and, and, but the other thing to keep in mind is that the minister that she would be succeeding was this, was this bigger than life person, a person who had been the president of the whole Unitarian Universal Association. He was a great orator, he was bigger than life, and so forth. So how can you replace somebody like that with a 29-year-old, in a sense, a neophyte, right? So, um, so I said, wow, she's terrific, and I remember some of my notes saying, oh, she's our next minister. And as our committee began to discuss this process and, and the candidates, 
one of the members of our committee happened to be a, he worked for the central office of the UUA in Boston, near Arlington Street. And um, when the bombing happened in 2013, um, the Arlington Street Church opened its doors and the senior minister, who I think might have been named in the last um, sir, uh, talk, um, was out of town. So here was this intern minister, this young 28, 29-year-old, who then brought the congregation together, brought the public together, and did this apparently, I wasn't there, but this apparently wonderful service, who one of the members of our search committee happened to be at, because he came feeling he needed to have that comfort. And um, he told us this story. He said, don't discard her, because she was so terrific in dealing with this horrific event that occurred. So we said, okay, and so we went through our process, and we call it discernment, you know? And we discerned and discerned and discerned, and we interviewed and we did all the process, and then the end result was, um, and certainly it influenced me, that, that, that the, if the bombing had not happened, we never would have hired her. And we did, and she's been with us for five years now, and she's been absolutely terrific. And, you know, we're so thankful, not for the bombing, but for w at least a good result from the bombing. I would like to welcome to the stage Kevin Gallagher. Kevin Gallagher. That's good. All right, we're going the other direction of uh, uh, Unitarian. Uh, we're going Catholic right now. Yeah, so uh, I, you know, I don't think of Catholicism as a religion. Uh, I think of it more as a lifestyle. Uh, but I do think that being gay is not a lifestyle. I actually think of that as a religion. Uh, however, if you are gay and Catholic, uh, we can simply just call that a curse <laughs> to make it easy. So I grew up in a very, very Irish Catholic family. Uh, and being the only boy, uh, there is a hope, uh, read the subtext, uh, expectation, uh, that you become a priest. Because, of course, this is the family business. And uh, Catholics are a little funny because there is this sort of sense that if you have a priest in the family, you get like a fast pass through purgatory. <laughs> and in heaven, you might get a house as opposed to a condo or an apartment. And so there's a lot of hope and promise. Uh, I actually remember one Christmas, I was maybe, I don't know, six or seven, and my grandparents gave me an altar for Christmas, like with a tabernacle and a chalice and a little bag of host. Uh, like, I didn't know play school made this shit, but there must be like a, a Catholic play school division. And uh, when the host ran out, no pressure, of course, but when the host ran out, I switched to Necco wafers. And so I would eat out the licorice ones, and then I would use the other ones for uh, mass. Uh, and I would say for several years, I was a very popular priest in my neighborhood. I would say mass two, three times a day uh, to feed the masses um, during mass. Well, uh, several years ago, I was in um, Rome uh, studying refugee trauma. Uh, so now you know how Catholics vacation. Um, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and I got really moved by sort of just the, the heavy emphasis on religion and the Catholic Church and the Pope. And, and I sort of thought, like, I'm going to, I'm going to go to confession, uh, I think, while I'm at the Vatican. Uh, so for the pagans in the crowd, confession is one of the seven sacraments. Uh, and you can think of the seven sacraments as, like, levels on a video game. Uh, sort of like the more you earn, the higher your level is. And uh, confession basically is you go in and you, you bear your sins uh, to the priest, and he gives you penance and absolution, and then the Holy Spirit descends upon you and gives you grace. And for non-Catholics, I would guess I could just say that grace, well, grace is sort of like a neck massage for the soul. <laughs> like, oh, oh, that's really good. Oh, right there, right there. Yeah, oh, 
Oh, this is helping so much. Yeah. Mm. And so if you think of your soul getting that kind of attention, that's how you're supposed to leave when you leave confession. Well, you're required to go to confession once a year at a minimum. I hadn't been in 25 years. Uh, and mostly because, you know, in my situation, I'm not quite sure I'm going to get the soul massage because once we start chatting, you know, I become an abomination unto the Lord and a perversion in society and yada, yada, yada. So it's sort of like it's hard to get excited about that conversation <laughs> with anybody. Um, but I sort of thought like, you know, I could, I could sort of, I could, I could rise to the occasion. Um, but let's get back to Rome. So Rome, uh, so Catholics to Rome are like uh, gamblers to Vegas, you know, except we're holy rollers and they might not be. And so St. Peter's Basilica is the casino. Uh, and if you've ever been there, it's, it's six acres inside with 500 foot ceilings. Like this is uber Catholic. And uh, it's pretty impressive. But in a regular church, there's like one or two spots to go to confession. But because this place is so huge, they had 50 podiums lined up. And in front of each podium was the language that the priest spoke. And so 50 priests behind the podium. And, and then throngs of people sort of lined up to go to confession. Uh, basically, it was sort of like cattle call for sinners, you know, auditioning for salvation. You know, if we sort of think of a theater metaphor. Uh, and so I looked around and I saw that there was this uh, priest that spoke Gaelic and English and I thought, well, that kind of suits me. And so I got in his line and I get up there and he was a pleasant looking fellow and I get up there and I do my, you know, bless me father for I have sinned. It has been 25 years since my last confession. Uh, I would like to do a, um, a general confession. Now, I learned of the general confession from my mother who said that a general confession is a special kind of confession that people who have lapsed in their, in their, what's it called? Their, in their reconciliation with the Lord, um, that you offer themes of your sins as opposed to actual sins. Uh, so the, the priest, and, and, and I trust my mother quite a bit because she's an uber Catholic, like mass twice a day, uh, you know, she was Catholic Woman of the Year uh, in the state of Vermont. Um, like, she knows her way around Catholicism like Julia Childs knows her way around a kitchen. So these are, they, they would be equals. And so the priest in his very heavy brogue said, I've never heard of a general confession. I've never heard of such a thing. Um, you actually have to tell me your sins, the real ones. And I said, well, not to be disrespectful, Father, but I said, I can't remember 25 years worth of sins. Um, and like, who would want to listen to that? I said, it would take a very long time. I've got all the time in the world. And I thought, oh, okay, I already hate you. I already hate you. And I'm not intimidated by priests and nuns because we have a lot in our extended family. But I thought, this guy is like really difficult. So I started to defend myself again, and he said, let me just ask you a question, sir. Um, have you been going to Mass for the last 25 years and receiving the Holy Communion? And I said, yes. And he goes, well, there we go. We've actually established your first actual sin. You've been receiving communion without the sacrament of, of uh, confession. And I thought, it's going to be a really long time at the podium. <laughs> and I can say at the end, <laughs> at the end, of my confession, I was as worn out as the pages of my mother's prayer book. Um, but as a psychotherapist, I feel like I invite people to come into my office and to explore the difficulties that they experience in their lives and hopefully find some kind of inner peace, some sort of place of massage of their soul, maybe. Uh, not actually just detail their sins. Uh, so sometimes I think like maybe I did become a priest, except that I still kind of go out dancing at the boat slip. Thank you. Uh, we are going to introduce a really special guest storyteller who is um, a comedian from New York City. He's currently residing in New Zealand. He's one of the original bears of comedy. 
Neil performed in New York City, Washington, D.C., P-Town, Fire Island, and the Poconos. He was the originator of New York's sold-out all-bear comedy review, funny, furry, fierce. <laughs> I want to see that. And he was one of the founders of Mauled, the bears of comedy, in Provincetown here. I remember that. Um, so he makes a regular appearance on the New Zealand television comedy news show, The Project, and was featured on the TV3 comedy special, After Hours. You can actually see him this Tuesday night, the 16th at 8 p.m. in his original uh, one-man stand-up called Omnivore, and that's gonna be at the Paramount at the Crown and Anger. You can get tickets at, I think it's only at thecrown.org. Um, and let's bring him to the stage. Very special guest, Neil Thornton. Neil. Hello, hi, I'm very happy to be here, it's nice. Um, yeah, so this is, what I'm telling tonight is actually part of the show I'm doing Tuesday. So if you like it, come see more of this, and if you don't like it, I've kept you from making a very horrible mistake. So, <laughs> hi, welcome. Yeah, so it's Bear Week over there on the other side of town where there's worship happening of a completely different kind. Uh, some of it on its knees, and uh, it's a dirty story, so let's go there, shall we? I'm, Although I did want to say this about the mosquito. Last, a couple of years ago, I came here uh, for bear. If you don't know the big burly bearded boys, you'll see walking up and down Commercial Street. Those are the bears, right? Uh, but a couple of years ago, there was a massive mosquito problem at the beginning of the week. And by the end of the week, they had all died of cholesterol poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> so I do like bear week because I don't have to choose between sex and bacon cheeseburgers. Okay. Uh, all right. Two things you need to know before the story. Number one is I suffer from pretty bad low self-esteem. It comes from being a fat kid growing up, and especially a fat gay kid. When you look at the pictures of the people you worship, and then you look at yourself in the mirror and go, this is not gonna work, I need to be funny. So, uh, <laughs> and you live your whole life. I've lived the last uh, several eight years in New York City, where, by the way, by the standard, I'm kind of average build, uh, by bare standards, anorexic, by New York. New York City gay standards, morbidly obese. I had to buy two plane tickets to get up here. I, it's this, this, this was always a problem. This has always existed. I have not let myself go. Uh, this has always been there. And it, in your 20s, that sucks. When you're in your 48, you're like, fuck it, this is banging, we're going. All right, let's make it up. So this is the story of how I gained a lot of that newfound self-esteem. Um, so the other thing you need to know is I will never say no to a comedy gig anywhere ever, period, end of sentence. Hello, that's why I'm here. So uh, I love talking to people. I love doing things. I will do my gay fisting jokes at your daughter's bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah. I will just, I, it's fine. You just bring me there, I'll go. So. When I was 38, uh, 39, almost 40, uh, and I got a call after doing comedy for like a year, and a guy called, he was like, I'm this promoter, uh, and I'm gonna do a show, can you do 25 minutes of stand-up comedy at a resort in the Poconos? And I said, yes, uh, and he said, okay, this is for the Gay Naturist International, and I heard naturalist, and I was wrong. And if you don't know, um, naturist means nudist. Um, and this is the annual gathering of gay nudists uh, in northern Pennsylvania. And they would, uh, and before hanging up, oh good, uh, it'll be $200 and they would prefer if you perform naked by click, all right. <laughs> so I decided, fuck it, I'm, I'm turning 40, we gotta do it now. If we're ever gonna do it, we gotta do this now. So I started going to the gym and it didn't work. Um, <laughs> So it comes up to the show, I'm getting picked up in a van in New York City with the other performers on the bill. And I come to the van and I'm very proud of myself, I'm ready to do this, I'm gonna perform naked, it's gonna be great. And who is else in the van with me but the other two acts on the bill, it's a 28-year-old ripped, gorgeous, beautiful stripper and a 21-year-old acrobat from Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> and your closing act this, hi, how are you? I'm like, all right, this will be fine, this will be fine, and we have a nice drive down, and it's all good. And we get to this gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful campground with cabins out in Poconos. It's absolutely, stunningly beautiful. And a guy meets us at the van, uh, and he says, okay, well, here's the rules of the, uh, if you're going to be walking around, we would prefer you were disrobed uh, anywhere you go around uh, the campus, and also everywhere you go, you need to bring a towel. Now, some of you are confused already. Uh, I didn't know, because you need it. Uh, see, she's nodding already. <laughs> you're there. What do you need a towel for? 
Sitting down, yeah, all right. You need a towel to put on your chair everywhere you sit down. Uh, a lesson they learned in year two. And uh, year three, they moved away from white towels altogether. So they... <laughs> So they invite me to the cocktail reception at 5 p.m. before the show. And I'm thinking, oh, what to wear. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, I really should have thought more about this. If you go to a straight nudist colony, by the way, it's very impolite to look at the beds. Uh, you go to a gay nudist resort, and I get there, and everybody has blinged this out like a fucking Christmas tree. <laughs> like bells and whistles and piercings and neon arrows pointing, look, and little train tracks and like... Uh, <laughs> So straight people, don't look. Gay people, look! Uh, and I started to feel better because I'm water. I, I'm okay because I find out that the age of this place is about an average age of 61, but like a fit 61, like a lean and tan and been working out their whole goddamn life, 61. And they're all tan from head to ankle, perfectly evening, evenly, and they've all shaved from completely head to toe. They look like um, expensive car seats. Uh, <laughs> So I had fun, and <laughs> so it comes time for the show, and I'm waiting backstage, kind of like waiting, and oh God, I'm gonna do this. And so the acrobat from Cirque du Soleil comes up, 21, and he performs naked, and he does a contortion act on the stage, which was like, it, his genitals kept appearing in like the most bizarre <laughs> and random places. They kind of bloom like a magician going, ta-da, with the flowers. Uh, And then he leaves, and it's time for the gorgeous stripper who comes out fully clothed, does his rocking stripped act until he gets to his G-string, and at the moment of just about to pull off his G-string, he panics and runs off the stage to the most confused round of applause I've ever heard. <laughs> and now for your comedian, Neil Thornton, and I come out on stage to a massive, worshipful, thunderous applause as I walk out on stage, finally naked. Uh, and I come out, uh, and... Um, Couple things. Uh, they say you should picture the audience naked, yes? Uh, but it was cold that night, and, um, and so all these men are very committed to the nudist cause, so what they're doing is they're coming to the show, laying down their towels, and they're sitting there with jackets and windbreakers and sweaters and no pants. Now. Which, by the way, if you're ever nervous public speaking, picture that, because it's amazing. It just <laughs> All these very polite, middle-class men in their 60s with really nice legs, uh, but they're all bare legs, and it all looks like they've been mushroom farming, and <laughs> they've all got one mushroom, and it's just right here. And I might have done the best 25 minutes of stand-up I've ever done in my entire life. Like, I've never been, this is fine. This, I don't know if it's a grower shower, but it's fine. It shows up, it's okay, it does its job. This is always a problem. And so I did like the most focused, intense, like emotionful and committed 25 minutes of stand-up because I was like, pay attention to this, motherfucker. No, we're gonna pay. <laughs> we're gonna pay attention to this. And it went really well, massive round of applause left for this evening. And now there's the disco, the naked disco. I'm like, all right, I'm going to the disco. because. 300 gay men have just watched me perform naked for 25 minutes. If I do not get laid tonight, I will kill myself. Do you understand? <laughs> so I go to the party afterwards, and it was a lot of fun, and I dance around, and I was like, ah, there he is. Okay. Um, by the way, I saw him across the, across the way. Um, how to describe him? Um, you ever seen that evolutionary chart? You know, the ascent of man? Yeah? Yeah, he was like three from the back, which was, oh, just... <laughs> So my type. Uh, <laughs> so let's cut a long story short, shall we? <laughs> to gloss over that, I will say this. If you do not worship your own body, if you suffer for body shame, I do highly recommend at some point in your life you arrange to walk out on stage naked to thunderous applause. It does wonders <laughs> for you. And part two of that, if that doesn't make you worship yourself, find a Neanderthal to worship you for you. <laughs> All right, good night. Thank you. Our next storyteller, Pat. Okay, so I have a story, and it has to do with worship. Yes, I do. And 
it starts off when I was very young. I had several different types of worship that were going on around me. I had two separate households and everything. So they did like, they did the Santeria thing. They worshiped like, date, like plaster saints and stuff and gave it like oranges and apples. And I wasn't really into that. They were kind of scary. So I was like, I was under 10, under 10 years old watching this. And I thought, can't worship that. Then they tried to get me to do like, you know, the the big dress with the ruffles and the white and, you know, be like virginal, like walk like this in the Catholic religion. And I thought, I like the nuns. They look like a bunch of lesbians, but um, <laughs> I didn't really know that word then. So that wasn't it. And I thought, you know, they used to give me Neckos too as, as, ho as the little host thing. Where's Kevin? Yeah, the Neckos as host uh, to practice making communion. And I liked the Neckos, I just, you know, I didn't like the clicker and stuff like that. So I figured, okay, I'm not gonna be worshiping this. Well, I tried Buddhism and I just, I couldn't sit still. And then, <laughs> you know, I tried a lot of different things. I, you know, my mother was Jewish for a little while, so I got to learn about Judaism. And that was really cool, I really liked the food and the stories that I was told, but you know, the bottom line is I wasn't sure what I was supposed to worship. But then one day I was sitting in front of the TV set and um, I was with my sister. My sister was very coquettish, very feminine. She was like all into the white dresses and everything. But um, I was sitting in front of the TV set with her and I'm not really prone to this day to you know, the lives and styles of the rich and famous or the movie stars. And there she came on the screen. It was black and white, but there she was. She was my goddess. It was Cher. I thought I would get on my knees for her. That's what I thought. And I thought, well, maybe this is what I need to worship. Like, you know, my sister has all these movie stars that she's like obsessed about and crazy about. And I looked at Cher and it was during her gypsies, tramps and thieves kind of thing. So she looked grungy and dirty and I was like, oh, I, I like that. So I immediately decided, yeah, this is for me. This is for me. I didn't know the word lesbian yet, just FYI. So I'm going through my life, and every time Cher came on, it was like, nobody talk. This is my prayer, just nobody talk. And I watched Cher as I was growing up, and I really loved, like, you know, when she was going through her massive changes and everything. And then, then I got to know the word lesbian, and I thought, that's me. And so it was a revelation for me to finally have this hero woman who decided that she was gonna go through a phase being promiscuous, because I thought, oh, I can get behind that too. <laughs> so I did. And, you know, and, and then she went through her fashion and glamour thing, and you know, as you can see, I'm very much about that. <laughs> hey, I live in Provincetown over 30 years, okay? This is the fashion. <laughs> get with the program here. So, yeah, so this was, this was my goddess. Now, you know, to, to bite my ass, my mother always did. She would be like trying to one up. So she knew at this point, I was like in my, my 30s and she knew that I had gone crazy over Cher and Tweety Bird too, by the way, but Cher. <laughs> Um, and at this point, I wasn't sure if it was cool for a lesbian to be like, you know, worshiping Cher as a goddess. I thought that was a gay boy thing to do, you know, Madonna and all that stuff. So anyway, so I was not denying it. I went to a couple of Cher concerts. I could like smell her sweat and everything. And I was really good with that too. But <laughs> the thing is, my mother moved to Las Vegas and like the third year that she was there, she moved in with my aunt and my aunt worked for Treasure Island. And she made good friends quickly and she ended up being friends with Cher's cousin, who then took my mother, my mother, to see Cher. 
and so my mom comes to visit me and she throws this photograph down on the table and she says, look, it's me and Cher. <laughs> now, Vanessa already warned me that because of the podcast, I can't say the F word a lot. So I won't, but I did then. And so, <laughs> and so I thought, oh my goodness. And she says, I got that picture for you. So there is my mother. There's my aunt who, you know, I like her, she's okay, but you know, she shouldn't be there with Cher, like touching my goddess in unholy ways, like her arm was on her. So, so they have this picture of Cher and Cher's got all the regalia on and she just looks like something I would put up on my altar and just stare at. I swear, if I ever met her, I wouldn't know what to say. I would just be having them, having them, having them. And I'm, I'm generally not at a loss for words. So, um, so I, uh, I look at the photo and I make believe, oh, I'm so happy for you. She says, oh yeah, we go all the time. We get VIP passes, we go back with Cher. And I thought, this is my in. I said, mom, the next time you go see Cher, just deliver a message from me. Tell her that your daughter from Provincetown, I figured this is gonna get Cher to come visit me. Your daughter from Provincetown worships her. She is your daughter, Pat Medina's goddess. And my mother said, oh yeah, okay. I said, Ma, repeat after me. This is serious business here. She said, I got it, I got it. I said, no, you have to say it. Say it to me like you're gonna say it to her. So she did, you know, she was like, oh, whatever, you're crazy, we know that. I've been sending you to therapy. I'm like, you don't pay. And she's like, oh, okay, okay, let's just knock it off now. And I said, okay. So she comes back to me like the following year for a visit to Cape Cod. And I said, so you went to go see Cher again? And you know, I say it like that, like you went to go see Cher again. And she said, yeah, I did. And I said, so did you give her my message? She said, yeah, I did. I said, well, what did she say? She said, oh, well, tell your daughter in Provincetown that I said hello. I'm like, I was crushed. I was crushed. I was, you know, really disappointed. My deity my, had just, like, disappointed me. I thought she was going to say, you have a daughter in Provincetown, and she's a lesbian. I want to be there with her. Now, mind you, I want you to know I don't really, like, worship Hollywood stars or I don't really worship anything. I worship nature, maybe, whatever, you know. Um, but, yeah, I was crushed. I was really crushed up until my friend comes to me this one day and says, do you want to go to Boston? Cher is giving her farewell tour. And I was like, I need this closure, yes. <laughs> My friend said, it's gonna be your birthday anyway. I'm gonna buy you a ticket. I said, okay. I said, buy me a ticket. Sure, I'll go with you. Now, the last time I had seen Cher, I was having nosebleeds and I'm afraid of heights. And so I just watched her on the screen above the stage. This time, my friend got me seats. I was like, from here to our lovely bartender over there, close. I could see through all her mesh costumes and everything. And I just felt, like I had closure at that point. That was my worship, so thank you very much. Okay, uh, let's have our next storyteller come to the stage. Who will it be? Mary G, Mary G, where art thou? Here she comes, yes. So I grew up Catholic like you did, and I loved it actually. It was great because you follow the Ten Commandments and you're going to heaven. I'm like, I can follow the rules, it's good, I'm going. And I got over it at, in college, I'm like, yeah, it's not working for me. And I started doing some other things just to understand like the world and spirituality, right? So when I had children, I decided we're, we're gonna experiment with different, different uh, churches. because so I want them to understand spirituality, but not necessarily the whole God thing in the Ten Commandments. So we picked the UU Church in Boston with Kim Crawford Harvey who's a, a dear friend of mine. And we've been going there since my kids were little. And so they're now 15 and 17. And they loved it when they were little. They love the food afterward. They love the kids' hour. They love the singing. It's all good. So my son decides about, I don't know, a year ago, yeah, I don't want to go to church. 
My ankle's really hurting. Jacob, we're going to church. Okay, fine. Uh, sun's too bright, wind's too strong, can't go to church. <laughs> you name it, he came up with every excuse. So one day he says to me, Mom Air, I just got to tell you, I'm not going to church. I'm an atheist. I said, what? He said, I don't believe in God. And I don't want to go sit there for an hour talking about God. And I said, when is the last time you heard the word God in the Unitarian Universalist Church? We don't talk about God. He's like, oh, yeah. All right. So off we went to church. Our next storyteller, A.G. A.G., where are you at? All right, first time. Uh, conscripted at the door, so I have no idea how long this is going to take. <laughs> I'll make it brief, though. Um, so who remembers 1997? Well... I guess should be the modifier for that. Um, so when I was a kid, when I was uh, thinking about uh, falling in love, I knew I would find my soulmate when I was 28. Don't know how I knew it, but I just knew it. And so 1997, I'm 28, and I meet my soulmate. Um, and, uh, you know, sun, brightness, vibration, the world is tilting beneath my feet. Um, but we meet, and she is moving away in three weeks from when we meet. So, and she's going to school, so it's not like a, I'm just going away, and this is casual and, and whatever. But um, uh, so we spend three weeks, and you know, as lesbians do, uh, it's every moment for every day of three weeks doing everything that you could possibly do in three weeks' time, um, and the the day comes and she's going to leave and she goes off literally in a gold Mercedes to drive across the country to San Francisco and to go to art school because if you're going to go to art school, go in a gold Mercedes. Um, and so, you know, uh, I'm 28 and flat broke because I am a, you know, I was wearing uh, Oshkoshes and a tank top and Birkenstocks, and I worked in a nonprofit organization making $533 a month. Um, so I had no money, like zero, and she's in San Francisco. And so, you know, you buy phone cards, but there was also this cool thing, this new thing called email, um, which I don't know if you remember email in 1997, but you would go and you'd write the email, and it would be very, you know, just your heart would pour it into this computer, and then it would go. And it went to someone else, or it never went anywhere, or it showed up a week later, or whatever. But so you'd be like, how you doing? Great. Anyway, cool. Bye. And you'd hit send because you just didn't have any more words left. Um, so my friends, who were amazing, it was my birthday in September, and they said, we'll, we will fly her back. We will contribute money. And back then, you know, it was expensive. They put all their money together, and they flew her back for my birthday. And there was this amazing man who was also a little bit of a lech, but he let us use his apartment down in the South End, which was built by the people from Disney. It literally had a koi pond inside the apartment. Um, it was insane. It was totally crazy. And everyone I ever knew or didn't know or thought I knew showed up at this amazing party and celebrated my birthday and the fact that, that I was in love. And, um, and then she had to fly home. And that was, that was really hard. And my friend, Tony, who was an amazing shaman, and this is how I am making the tenuous connection to worship, takes me out apple picking to the, the church, which is nature. And we, she's gone, and she's flown back. And we go to this beautiful apple orchard out in Stowe, and we sit in the apple orchard. And we don't actually pick any apples, because why would you do that? We just sit in this orchard and the sun is setting, and we finally are like, okay, we should go. And I just sort of had my hands in my lap, and this beautiful red dragonfly, sorry, I'm sweating, <laughs> comes and lands in my hand. And it's gorgeous, and like, wow. And so we look at it, and so I'm like, okay, we should go, and so I kind of go like this, and it flies around, flies around, and lands back in my hand. So we're like, oh, this is, this is interesting, and so 
we sit for a little while and finally we're at the sun setting, we should go, and so we go like this and it comes back and it lands in my hand a third time. So clearly this is very, very meaningful. So finally we're like, and we run. <laughs> um, so Tony, who is just a, a dear friend and a, and a spiritual being, we go back to my apartment and he was, he was obsessed with Mara, my partner. And he was like, call her, call her, find out what she was doing. I was like, what? He's like, just give me the phone. So he calls her up and he says, Mara, what were you doing at one o'clock your time, you know, four o'clock our time when we were at this apple orchard? And she's like, you know, it was the funniest thing. She's like, when I got off the plane from coming to visit you, she's like, the stewardess handed me a Smithsonian magazine, which I thought was weird because if you're gonna hand somebody a magazine on a plane, why don't you do it at the beginning of the ride as opposed to at the end of the ride when you don't need something to read, but you would be desperate for six hours to read anything. And she's like, so, you know, I'm in this film program and I don't really, I'm finding that I don't really like film, but I've started painting and there were these beautiful pictures of dragonflies. And so I was painting dragonflies all afternoon, so. That's the story. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. Bye.